Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hey everyone, it's Guy Adami here. I wanted to let you know about a live webcast Dan Nathan and I are hosting on December 8th. We'll be covering the market outlook for 2022 with three experts from FactSet. That's going to be live on Wednesday, December 8th at 12 p.m. Register right now by clicking the link in the description of this episode. We hope to see you there. So I've never been a huge Beatles fan. Although, look, I acknowledge the genius that was the Beatles and the four members of the band. I always thought, by the way, that George Harrison was really the driving force. But watching this Peter Jackson documentary that I watched, by the way, all eight hours of it, it is clear to me and think to everybody that Paul McCartney is the genius. Not unlike the fact that Danny Moses is probably the genius of the On The Tape podcast. Thoughts on that, Dan Nathan? He certainly is the genius. He's introduced many topics that I will tell you, when we were starting to feel ourselves out at the start of 2021 with the On The Tape podcast, and every once in a while, Danny would just get pissed at me. I was like, bro, that's a little wonky. And he has been ahead of many, many themes. And I've said it, and you've said it on Fast Money, Guy. Danny Moses is one of the first people, one of the first financial pundits, if you will. You are a pundit now, bro. You are part of the pundit class that introduced the idea of stagflation coming back to our shores in 2021. In a world where the Fed has no idea what they're doing, emerges stagflation. Well, I will tell you this. I keep saying this, that watching the tenure may be the wrong thing. So the one thing that stands out to me is the Fed. And if you look at the Fed fund futures, since last week, there's actually less hikes built in now than there was. And that's interesting because, yes, you had Omicron variant come around, but then you had the Fed basically do a 180 on us. And now the chance for rate hikes are still there, but like the chance for two and three have somewhat diminished, which is interesting. So the reason I think that's important is because watching the two-year, I think the market's telling us that a high two-year will slow down the economy, that a high two-year yield will bring things not to a grinding halt, but slow things down and will actually slow the Fed down. And so I think that's what's happening here. And Yes, we don't have an inverted yield curve. It's not there yet. We're at 82, 83 basis points as we sit here. But I'm watching the 210 come in, and that's what it's telling me. And when I look at Fed Fund Futures with that, that's the message that I'm getting. Well, it's interesting that uh, George Harrison at one point during those uh, tapings, or he actually quit the band, and Lennon said, that's okay, we'll just get Clapton. But there is no, you are Clapton, <laughs> Danny Moses, so please yeah. don't quit the band. I know Dan Nathan's not too. By the way, You're listening to On The Tape. I am Guy Adami, joined as always by Dan Nathan and the aforementioned genius Eric Clapton, Danny Moses. A wild week in the markets. Listen, this pal pivot surprised everybody. We're going to talk about that and the fears of the new COVID variant. Spooking investors, at least on and off spooking investors. We'll break that all down. Plus, waning iPhone demand? I thought every I thought the whole world wanted an iPhone. I thought Apple was like the greatest products ever. What do you mean waning? I don't even know how to spell waning. And later we're going to go off the tape with Ian Bremmer. 
political scientist and president of Eurasia Group. I'm looking forward to that. Listen, Danny Moses, Pal finally did it. He said, we're taking transitory out. He admitted it. He clearly listens to On The Tape podcast, Danny. Obviously, I think, you know, he made one audition well where he got reappointed and now he's got to go through the confirmation process. And now he's appeasing the other side, I guess. So he's trying to win-win here, but looks like a win-lose for the markets, I guess, right now. And so, you know, now we got to wait and see what's going to happen. I think people were shocked that with this new variant coming on that he still was able, you know, because he spoke after the variant kind of came out. Either he's assuming the variant's going to do nothing to slow down the economy or slow his path down, but he's obviously seeing things. And the one thing that Yellen said also was wage price spiraling. And that's been the one thing I think that's that's really sitting in his head right now is watching wages and the thought of wages moving higher can be self-fulfilling for inflation. And I think that's what's going on here. Yeah, I got a feeling, though, that they're not going to be able to let it be at this moment. Oh, well, hold stop for a second. I saw what you did there in five seconds. I got a feeling a Beatles song and they won't let it be. That's a great job. Dan Nathan playing our uh-huh. home game. I've got a feeling is a great song off the 1970 album, Let It Be, by the Beatles there, co-authored by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. I just have a feeling, and I mean this very sincerely, that Powell might have just really tripped himself up here because the whole idea, you know, we were calling it this summer, or at least I was, the transitory tantrum. It wasn't that we were thinking that inflation was going to be so sticky. I I know some people thought that way. Equity markets never really got hit hard on the the rising inflation expectations. I think we are right now in the midst of the greatest peak to trough decline in the S&P 500 in 2021, which was about 6% or so. But it was really amongst the pundit class and what they thought it meant for, and look at what's going on right here. No one thought if they pulled forward their expectations for taper that the 10-year would actually come in, right? And then you'd start losing rate height expectations for 2022, which had already been piling up a little bit here. So to me, I just feel like we've literally gone into kind of haywire macro land here, this move in crude, these move in the 10-year, the move in the twos. Look at the dollar here. It broke out of this 12 to 18-month range of this malaise that it's been in here. So I just feel like some things are coming unhinged. And I'm just going to segue a little bit. Our friend Gavin Baker from Atreides Management, who's going to be a guest on on the tape in the next couple of weeks, he had this tweet out here. 17% of stocks in the NASDAQ made a new 52-week low yesterday, the most since March 23rd, 2020. That was the low in the market. I just think that's really interesting. And then he speaks to the crowdedness. Um, so as it relates to equities, equity markets, even with a VIX in the mid to high 20s, is still really complacent, in my opinion. I'm with you, Dan. It's fascinating. And maybe, listen, Danny said it earlier, maybe we should not be watching the 10-year. Maybe it's been the two-year all along, and the two-year yields, which have gone effectively in two months from 20 basis points to 60 basis points. I mean, I can do that math. That's a triple. Maybe that's really the thing that we need to watch. But the volatility this week is fascinating, and you saw VIX finally get north of 30, I think, for the first time since February or March of this year, right around that period of time. And even with that big rally on Thursday, you still saw a VIX north of 25. So, what the market is telling you is maybe there's that fear back in the market for the first time. And maybe these are the types of uh, price fluctuations that we got to sort of get used to over the next couple of months. The one thing that's clear is that when the Fed hints at going or goes or talks about tapering and so forth, there's always volatility in the market. But the one thing is certain is that no one believes that the Fed can raise rates three, four, five times without there being massive implications for the market. And that's what we're starting to see. And what we're seeing on the short end here certainly in the two year is that's where a lot of funding takes place and not to get wonky again, but people that are out there, but that's where 
credit spread credit spreads start to get hit, right? Is it just becomes more expensive, but gain on sale margins shrink for consumer finance companies. So everything just becomes a little bit more expensive along the way. And I think that's what we're seeing. And you can explain some some moves in some of these companies that are consumer finance companies that are getting hit. Otherwise, appear to be strong earnings, strong company momentum, but they're getting hit because underneath the surface, our credit spread widening starting to occur. And if you start to factor that in, just the cost of capital just goes higher in general. That changes the outlook for the S and P five hundred. Yeah, sure. I want to add one thing. You know, guy, you kind of set me up here. The last time the VIX was thirty, it was in March. And if you think about where the S and P five hundred, the S and P five hundred was six hundred points lower. Okay, it was like thirty nine fifty. The ten year U S. Treasury yield was one point seven percent. The dollar was much lower, and then crude was somewhere in and around current levels or so. So when you think about, there's definitely some major disconnects. And if you think about how much further along and how much more that we know about the potential for really an inflection in the economy. I think the one thing, again, I just come back to the one thing that sticks out like a sore thumb is the price and the valuation of the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. And if you think about what the Russell has done, the Russell is also back to the levels of where it was in March or so, but it's just come off 12%. So what is that telling us, Guy? It's interesting. You know, for those playing our home game, IWM is what I look at. The line in the sand comes around 213 and a half. Let's call it 213 in terms of huge support. That was the lower end of the range from February until the recent breakout. So if we were to trade through there, you got to be careful. But people are probably listening to saying, hey, you touched on the variant earlier on in terms of COVID, and now you're talking a lot about the Fed. Seemingly, the I would submit this. You know, I think that the headline clearly for the market this week or since a week and a half has been this variant. But I, I think that's a bit of a red herring. I, I think the market's past... COVID, I think we've learned, at least market-wise, we've learned how to deal with that. I think this volatility is absolutely at the feet of the Federal Reserve who have completely taken a new posture. You know, now inflation is what they want to combat, and that's completely different than just two weeks ago. There's just so much information flying around, you know, in the markets that are moving it. And to your point, I think people are going with the assumption right now that the current vaccines probably work that this is, yes, maybe more contagious, but not as severe yet. And I think to Dan's point, no one wants to go backwards. People want to move forward here. They want an excuse. People are resilient. They want an excuse to keep moving forward. And I think that's what the market's trying to grapple with. But here's the irony. At the same time, if that's true, some people were probably hoping deep down there and, you know, investing in the market that maybe no one wants anyone to die, but maybe this is enough to slow things down a little bit to get Powell off course, which is why I think when he said what he did on Tuesday, about the markets moving forward. I think that was the shock to the market. So they want a little bit of inflation, not a lot. And that's why I say watching the rates and watching the market together makes so much sense. And yes, look at the VIX, but then like I told you before, look at this move index. Anyway, again, I don't want to get too wonky on everything, but there's a lot of moving parts here. And I think that the fear is that things get back to normal quicker, that things kind of resume growth here again quickly. And then we we're off to the races as far as inflation goes and the Fed has to act quicker than they thought. Dan, one of the things you've mentioned, and you've been spot on, by the way, is the fact that these high valuation, high growth names have been given it up in spades. I mean, if you look at some of these names, they've gotten taken out to the woodshed. Broader markets hung in there without question. I mean, we're still within a few percent of an all-time high in the S&P. The NASDAQ, we obviously talked about the Russell giving it up a bit, but some of the leaders in terms of just price action have been giving it up. And you would submit, I think correctly, 
that that is a huge warning sign for what potentially could come in the form of the S&P 500. Yeah, so we've been talking about this. There's no low enough for the, some of these story names, some of these secular shift names, some of these names that saw their products and services accelerated by the pandemic. And now it's just the tables have been turned. And it's not even just high valuation, unprofitable names. I'll just tell you this. Look across things that have de or current SPACs. I mean, it's just brutal out there. Look across recent IPOs. It is brutal out there. And so it's not just unprofitable tech. I'm looking at Alibaba right now. This is a company that has a $326 billion market cap. If you threw that in the S&P 500, it's a top 50 name. But here's the kicker. That stock has been cut in half this year. It's down 50% in 21, and it's down 62 or 63% from its all-time highs made a year ago. So when you start to see names like that, Get, and I know that's a complicated situation. And I know there's a lot going on there. It starts to lead me to believe that this is just kind of the start of something that's going to go into 2022. And then the last shoe to drop is really going to be those five or six names that make up 25% of the S&P 500 and make up 50% of the NASDAQ 100 that have massively outperformed. And I will tell you this, and I'm going to sound like a broken record here. I think the crowding in those names is really bearish. You may say if you own the indices, well, it's great because they're keeping the S&P 500 only down 5% from its all-time highs in the face of our no shortage of headwinds that are going around in macro land and the potential for growth really being squashed in 2022, which means that expectations for earnings in the S&P 500, that consensus is right now, I think per fact said, about $222, it places the S&P 500 about 20 and a half times, which is expensive relative to its five and 10-year average, which, which I think are you know mid-teens to high-teens respectively, um, all of a sudden, you basically introduce a higher rate environment, even if it's on the short end, that's when everything gets repriced. And that's the thing that investors, to me, don't seem to be paying attention to. You know, Gavin's paying attention to it. He's telling us that nearly 20%, one in five stocks in the NASDAQ are making new 52-week lows. But people who, maybe it's Guy, maybe it's back to you about your passive investing, they don't seem to care. You know, I think there's a lot of quant funds, which people don't really get to see. They get unwound on moves like this, right? That you you don't know what's going on. They have nothing to do with valuations. They have to do with taking gross or taking money off of the table. And that's what's happening. And I'll tell you this. We've talked about it before, all the comparisons to 2000. And I realize that GameStop and AMC aren't huge market caps together. They're not small, but they're not huge. But when you see those start to move down with no sponsorship, that is the sign that retail is starting to get really hit here. And you're watching, again, post-market trading, pre-market trading of earnings, stocks going up 15, 20%, back down 15 to 20%. I can only think of one investor class getting hammered the most, and that's retail that's kind of chasing their tail here. So I'm watching AMC, GameStop's world as a barometer for how retail is performing, and I'm, and I'm watching that spillover effect to some of these other smaller names. Certainly, Dan, you mentioned, you know, in SPAC land and things like that that are recurring. So it's just lack of sponsorship out there. And God forbid, yes, Apple's a great company. Yes, Microsoft's a great company. They're not grossly expensive, but it doesn't take much of a move for those companies to start moving lower to have an impact on the overall market. Yeah, Dan, I'm glad you mentioned passive investing because I'm convinced that passive investing is one of the reasons this market seemingly looks past all the negative news and continues to grind higher. Obviously, a day or two here and there, we have these sell-offs, but then we finally get back into terra firma, as they say, and the market continues to grind higher. But Danny just said something, chasing their tail. That's interesting. In our world, and I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but 
We call that negative gamma. Some people call it bad Greek. But when people get so complacent that they become short volatility and net sellers of options, you know, when that volatility explodes like we've seen this week, that's exactly what happens. People start to chase their tail. The higher the market goes, the more things they have to buy. And then subsequently, the lower the market goes, the more things that they have to sell. And we saw exactly that on Wednesday of this week, Dan Nathan. Yeah, you know, the point about passive versus active guy, I mean, listen, at this point, if you have all these names that were great winners in 2020 and they're just disasters in 2021, pretty soon there's no one left to sell those. Those are going to have epic rallies. I mean, some of these things like the Zooms and the Pelotons and the Chegs and the Teladocs and, and some of those names have just gotten absolutely destroyed. And then when you're degrossing, what do you have to do? You have to sell your best names. You got to sell the names that everybody is so crowded in. And I will tell you, I was at this Credit Suisse tech conference this week in Arizona, and there's a couple narratives that were going around that I thought was really interesting. So, you know, everyone likes to, you know, we go on Fast Money or we go in our podcast or our trading spaces. Everyone likes to sound smart and come up with a reason why, you know, markets are doing what they're doing. But I heard this, and, and you know, when you start talking to salespeople or talking to traders and portfolio managers, and this stuff starts going around, Danny, you know this very well. The story was that two tech funds, and you just said this, but specifically two big pods at two big firms were degrossing in some of these higher valuation names. Now, they hadn't done it in the mega cap names. And when you start hearing that, that you, you start hearing about two, well, two becomes four, right? Four becomes 10, that sort of thing. And that's how you really get things to start snowballing. And that's how you say, oh, well, seasonality, the Christmas rally, whatever the hell it is. Well, that's how that goes away pretty quickly. Listen, for everybody out there, you know, I always say, do your own work, read the Qs and Ks, the 10 Qs and 10 Ks that are out there. This is, you know, as bearish as they may be, on, as I might sound on the overall market, there's always buying opportunities. I see stocks out there that are getting hit. So what Dan and Guy are talking about here is these quant fund unwinds. That's a huge opportunity potentially to buy some stocks. And yes, it's scary when you feel like you're alone out there buying. But if you have confidence in the longer term and you like the business model of a company, you like the sector that they're in, this is a great opportunity to start piecing into these companies. So don't get, you know, Yes, you might be getting hurt here, but um, don't sell your best names if you truly believe in the longer term there, because I think they're actually buying opportunities. What I was going to say was, and this this is that movie you were in, that big short movie, which is, I'm sure, just fabulous. But one of the cats in that movie was that Michael Burry dude, right? Is that right, Danny Moses? Yeah, yep. And I mentioned him because if you go back a couple months ago, he was talking about Kathy Wood, the ARC ETF. Look at that sucker now below 100. And here's my question to you, Danny Moses. Forget about whether or not Michael Burry is going to be proven correct. But is that one of the main things we should be watching in terms of the broader market? If that gives it up like it's been doing, could that potentially be a catalyst for a broader market sell-off? So as it relates to Kathy Wood and you know her investment portfolios and their, her themes within, many times you'll see stocks that are part of her portfolio that end up on the cutting room floor and you wonder what happened to the stock that day. Well, it's easy. It was outflows in her funds. She sold what she could, not maybe what she wanted to, but start to look at the concentration in some of her small and mid-cap names that she does have. She has amassed 20, 30% ownership of some of these companies. I'm sure those companies aren't pleased. They were probably pleased as they were getting inflows on the way up. But this is the downside to kind of, if you want to call it passive investing or ETF investing, where it's just kind of blind pools of money that go in and buy certain names. And don't get me wrong, there are quant funds set up to trade against her. We already know that Michael Burry talked about, I think he did talk about setting up an anti-fund on her and so forth, but people are already monitoring her portfolio. So I think those moves get exacerbated for her for her stocks on the way down as shorts start to mount, 
knowing that she's vulnerable. But these are the sorts of names too, right? That Danny, you're saying that there's opportunities there because at some point they're just kind of baby with the bathwater. I'm looking at a couple of her big holdings. Roku is down nearly 60% in just a handful, I don't know, three or four months or something like that. Teladoc, another big holdings down 70% from its highs earlier in the year. I mean, this is not an investment strategy. You can't, you can't be adding, even if you're an actively managed fund, you can't be adding because of inflows in February and a teledoc above 250 and consider yourself a sound investment strategy if you're also adding at 95 in November. It sounds like to me, and, and I, everyone prefaces it, when anyone talks about Kathy Wood, she was on all over CNBC this week. She did this long conversation with Sarah Eisman in a CNBC pro talk for like 45 minutes. Everybody prefaces it when they're talking about her. I don't want to pick on Kathy Wood. Like, you guys notice that? Like, But for some reason, she just seems like a glutton for it. She she has the wrong vehicle for her mindset or her investment time horizon. Heavy is a head that wears the crown. That would be Henry the Fourth for you Shakespeare fans out there. And that's just what it is. She's got a giant bullseye, not only in her back, but on her ETF as well. And that's just the way the system is set up, Danny Moses. Well, she comes on, it seems, whenever her funds are in trouble. When I say in trouble, there's outflows going on. She tends to pop up on CNBC and it seems a little bit desperate. She makes a comment that says, Benchmark stocks are in a bubble, but not her names. I don't even know what that even means. Well, the other one that wears the crown clearly has been Apple. I think it was back in October when they came out with an announcement, I think after the market closed, that they were having chip shortages. It was going to be a problem for the iPhone 13 or 17. I don't really give a shit because they're all the same to me. And then we heard this week, oh, Wait a second, Dan Nathan. I mean, I know you're an Apple lover. That Maybe the demand's not there. I think they use the word waning, which I find to be fascinating, by the way. The stock didn't really seem to react all that much, which is, again, just a remarkable. It didn't react in October as well. But is that a tell? Like, should we actually be looking at that, Dan, and say, wait a second, maybe Apple's trying to tell us something? This is amazing, actually. That's a great way to set this up, Guy, because you remember that day early in 2019? It was January 2nd, where Apple pre-announced negatively for the first time in over 10 years. Do you remember that? And the stock, it was trading at multi-year lows. I want to just tell you split adjusted where that was trading. It traded below $40, people. Okay. The stock had already sold off from 60 to 40. That announcement came out, the stock gap lower, and that was it. It literally was as low as like $35 or something like that. So look, think about how much the market has changed. Think about how much investors are willing to pay for certain stories. That stock was trading at about 13 times down there. And now, obviously, the multiple has more than doubled. The stock is up from 35 to 165 or something like that. It trades are about 26 times or so, or 28 times this current fiscal year. And people don't care. They do not care. That stock has gone up at its highs yesterday before it reversed was up 23% since the start of October. And just really to put that in context, okay, that's 23% on a 2.6 trillion dollar market cap company. How many stocks in the S&P 500 have the market cap of what that stock has just gained in two months? And it's trading at 28 times. I think it's the highest multiple the stock has ever traded at it, or at least in the last 20 or so years or so. And if headlines like that don't move this stock, the stock is basically unchanged, then you know what? I'm shrugging emoji here, bro. I, I just like, I don't even know what to say. 
You mentioned something like this in terms of Amazon. Amazon had a move earlier this year of that magnitude. You said, when was the last time you saw a company with that size of a market cap have that type of move? And now we're seeing it with Apple. And I don't know if it's a good or bad thing. I happen to think it's a really bad thing because I think what's happening is people are flying into these names, specifically Apple in this case, as some sort of flight to safety. But we have seen at least four times, maybe five over the last three and a half, four years, Peak to trough declines in Apple anywhere from 15 to 35 percent, Dan Nathan. And I happen to think, given the run we've seen, we're on the precipice of that again. All right. But that's the point, Guy. Microsoft has also gained 20 percent since the start of October. That is a $2.6 trillion market cap company. You do the math on that. That's a half a trillion dollars the stock has gained in two months for no good reason. Because you know why? Because it's not Zoom, because it's not Teladoc, because it's not Roku, because it's not any short of other names, not Alibaba, this or whatever. That's why they're going there. That will not resolve itself well. They did announce Apple that they're moving into the electric vehicle sector. So maybe they're getting just a little piece of flavor of that multi-trillion dollar sector when you add up all those market caps of those names. So that was the only thing that's really changed. I would say that was, quote, good news, if you want to call it that over the last couple of weeks for the company, for sure. So I think that, you know, these funds that are set up long, short, that need to be long things and short things, I think they take comfort in being long Apple and Microsoft. That's their kind of longs in their portfolio, knowing they're not going to, quote, get killed. If you're trying to run a balanced portfolio and, you know, you're running nets of 30, 40, 50%, if you're a hedge fund, that means, you know, your longs versus your shorts. Um, Obviously, I think these are used as longs. And so the shorts are working right now, right, for, you know, a lot of these funds that are set up that way. But God forbid, I mean, a a 10% move in these two stocks would be cataclysmic for the S&P 500 for sure. That's exactly right. Cataclysmic is the right word. And listen, everything we've just talked about in terms of Apple leads us down to the supplier, I guess, chain. And those, obviously, the semiconductor stocks. Now, listen, you look at the stocks, the Philadelphia Semi-Index, I mean, it's been on fire. I mean, look at some of the names we talk about. Not that they're necessarily Apple suppliers. I'm not making that, I'm not drawing that distinction or drawing that line, but NVIDIA. AMD, Qualcomm has been a monster. Texas Instruments has been, defies logic, in my opinion, given its valuation. Then you look at some of these other names that we talk about from time to time, names like Lamb Research, and then some of the manufacturers. I mean, it goes right down the line. I bring that up because it's going to be fascinating to see if the comments we just heard out of Apple are going to manifest themselves into earnings or earnings revisions for some of these semi-names. That has to be on your radar screen, Dan Nathan. Yeah, you know, again, I was just at this Credit Suisse conference, and I will tell you that I heard CEO of Intel, the CEO of AMD, the CFO of NVIDIA, all within like three hours. This was on Tuesday morning, and they all seemed relatively optimistic, I will tell you that. And so if Apple is telling their suppliers that demand is coming in, well, it's not like the day the headline comes out, the suppliers hear it. They've been knowing. And I will say that one of the investors' sort of skepticism was like they were really – thought there was a disconnect between the level of bullishness with a lot of these semi-executives. And they really think that the potential for stockpiling or a lot of double ordering that took place this year or fears of shortage of supply may end up into high inventories and order cancellations as we go into early 2022. So that's a story I think you're going to want to keep a very close eye on. And we're going to get earnings right out of the gate in mid-January from Intel, AMD, that sort of thing. And we're going to see it in those numbers if that is the case. Well, we'll see if there's a day of reckoning for some of these chip names. But was there a day of reckoning this past weekend as finally the great Danny Moses, maybe (laughs) did you lose 
the Midas touch. Is that yeah, it? Is uh, did you ring the bell in week twelve? Or are you going to turn it around in week around. thirteen in the league where they play for pay? So I lost a game again, and then I threw three out there that just so Dan could have some action. I lost two out of three of those, but my main pick was certainly lost both times that I've lost on a Sunday. The market got killed the following week, so you know maybe maybe there's a sign here. So I think the people out there want me to get this next one right. You ready for these this week? Danny, everybody but me, because I'm going to Everybody but you, side. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I got two games on the docket this week. So one is the Colts going at Texans. I mean, if the Jets can beat the Texans, then anybody can beat the Texans. And the Colts are a very good football team. I think they had a letdown after they crushed the Bills. They could have won that game against Tampa. Some bad turnovers late. I like the Colts to go on the road and destroy Houston, laying nine and a half. I like the Colts there. I think the Colts as a team could run for over 200 yards in that game. I am with you, Danny Moses. Yes, and Frank Reich loves to step on the gas pedal when he's got a team down, so I can see him bearing him. The second one is still, I I don't get this line. I get it because they're home team, but Patriots traveling up to Buffalo, Monday Night Football, best game of the year, I think, setting up to be. Give me the Patriots plus three. Josh Allen is two and three against Belichick during his career. He's thrown a lot of interceptions, you know, against him. Bills are inconsistent this year, and the Pats are the most consistent team in football. Give me the Pats plus three on the road. It's going to be a tight game, but I'm going to take them. So I'm going to actually take Buffalo minus three at home. Yep. And then I have one I want to throw out to you. This is a Thursday night game. So well, hold on. How much? You're down 3,500. A, a, a nickel, as you say. All right. Oh, okay. All right. A yeah. nickel. All right. So yeah. tonight, Thursday, um, by the time you guys listen to this, this game will have already been played. But the Cowboys at the New Orleans Saints, New Orleans at home, getting six points. Getting six points. I want to take New Orleans. I want to take the home dog. What do you think about that for a nickel, Danny? I mean, I'll do it. I'll take Dallas minus six. That's All right, fine. fine. You All can right. have I'm, that. I'm taking New Orleans You're plus six. All right. So okay. I have, I have the Bills at home giving three for a nickel, and I have New Orleans at home getting six for a nickel. For a nickel. See, the genius Nine. of Danny Moses is, and and I want to I want to make sure our fans listen to this. See the passive nature in which he said, "Yeah." I'll take the Cowboys. I think that's what you just did. Because if you lose, you're going to come back next week and say, yeah, my heart wasn't really into it. It's a brilliant move by you, Danny oh, Moses. Yeah. There was no all enthusiasm right. for that 48 we call that. Exactly. All right, all right. So in conclusion, folks, Danny Moses <laughs> is the bloom off the rose. Is the bloom off the Danny Moses rose the same way the bloom might be off the Kathy Wood rose in the same way the bloom might be off the apple rose? Those are the things you need to consider, folks, as this weekend ensues. We have the great Ian Bremmer coming up next. We go off the tape with my man, IB. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Ian Bremmer is a political scientist helping business leaders, policymakers, and the general public make sense of the world around them. He is president and founder of Eurasia Group, the world's leading political risk research and consulting firm, and G Zero Media, a company dedicated to providing intelligent and engaging coverage of international affairs. Ian is the author of 10 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Us Vs. Them, 
The Failure of Globalism, which examines the rise of populism across the world. He also serves as the foreign affairs columnist and editor-at-large for Time Magazine. Ian, welcome to On the Tape. Ian Bremer, I am a fan. I am thrilled you're joining us on the tape here. Welcome to Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and Danny Moses's On the Tape. Thank you. I'm drawn to people that are very bright and they don't hide from their intelligence. And you are one of those people. So we're going to talk about a lot of things. But the first thing I think we have to talk about is this new variant, the strain that seemingly has the markets on edge. I'm not certain, though, if it has the U.S. populace on edge. I'm not certain it should. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's just made landfall in the United States. Literally, as we are recording in the past moments, the CDC has given the official nod to that, not that any of us are surprised. Look, I think the news in the next couple of weeks is going to largely be crappy because all we're going to hear is more cases popping up everywhere while we still don't know the critical answer, which is, is this more or less or as lethal as Delta variant? Until we have that information, I mean, we know that if it was the same level of lethality, the vaccines are going to be a little bit less effective at least But we have more people getting vaccinated, more boosters, and we're going to have COVID pills. So on balance, you probably are getting a little bit less worried. But if the vaccines are a lot less effective, and that could be the case, and if this is as lethal or more, then this could easily be a third pandemic where Delta was the second. Remember, we made a lot of mistakes because we didn't think Delta was coming. And as a consequence, the U.S. ended up with, under Biden, more Americans dead from COVID this year than last year under Trump. Who saw that coming? And that's not because Biden's a horrible president and Trump is awesome, please, but it's because we did not think there was going to be a second pandemic, and there was. It's interesting that you're using the term second pandemic, third pandemic, rather than wave. The path was kind of set in 2020 for this to be a very divided country over the course of this pandemic and what people were willing to do and not willing to do. And so it's really interesting that you highlight the fact that there's more deaths in 2021, where there was this term that wasn't particularly popular, that it was a pandemic. The Delta pandemic was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And that is a legacy of the Trump administration, in my opinion, or the politicization of the vaccine. So Let's just say the current vaccines are just mildly less effective on this strain. And you have to make a big assumption that this strain is going to be a big thing. Are we likely just to see it again among these people who are not vaccinated? And therefore, is it really a failing of the current administration or just the way we operate here? I don't want to get all Bill Clinton on you here, but it depends on what your definition of it is. I mean, if you're talking about who's going to die, it's the unvaccinated. The unvaccinated will die. But if you ask me who's going to get the disease, everyone's going to get it. And that's partially because we have a lot of unvaccinated people, partially because these variants are really transmissible, and it's partially because your protection from the vaccines in terms of infectiousness is small. It doesn't last long. Biden made a mistake, frankly, in not pushing for boosters for everybody for months after they were available. He said, oh, old people... And people that had pre-existing conditions, that was a bad idea. And by the way, the companies were pushing him hard to go further than that. He's been cautious. And the problem is that six months after you've taken your Pfizer or your Moderna, which are the two most effective vaccines by far, with Delta variant, you're unlikely to get very sick. You're very unlikely to die. 
but you're quite likely to be able to get and pass on the Delta variant. And that's a serious problem. It means if you're not boosted, you're part of the pandemic. Now, okay, if you only care about yourself, that's fine. But for those of us that have to live in society, that's a problem. Yeah. And so let's talk about society because Guy and I look at these sorts of situations through the lens of financial markets or like the impact on the economy. And it feels like the markets got rattled last week, the holiday shortened week because of the threat of lockdowns in Europe to kind of mitigate the spread of this variant. And what does that mean for markets? What does it mean for the economy? It means that some of the bottlenecks that we're seeing in supply chains, some of the inflationary sort of pressures that we're seeing are just likely to be exasperated here. Delta, we learned a lot about it. It pushed out our hot vac summer. We didn't get it in. So maybe we get it in 2022 here. What do you think the likelihood, you just use the expression third pandemic, that this thing really blows up and it really pushes out the global economy reflating? We don't know. And we won't know. Look, what we know is that the cases overwhelmingly that we have data on so far with the Omicron variant are people under 30 years old who don't have pre-existing conditions. We know from South Africa that they've had more muscle pain and exhaustion. We know that fewer of them than expected have lost their sense of smell. None of them are really sick, but none of them from Delta variant would be getting really sick either. So we really have no useful information to answer that question, which we will in a couple weeks. And that's an unpleasant place to be because it's super digital. As I mentioned before, this could end up being much, much worse than the trajectory we thought we were on, or could actually be better if it turns out that it's super infectious, but much less lethal. It becomes the dominant strain, but no one's really getting sick or dying. That would be awesome news. Now, there could be long COVID issues that we're not aware of, and that could create significant knock-on long-term health costs. But as you know, with climate change and other things, it's not like any of us care about the long-term in the markets. So that's fine. We've got discount variables. I think that it is appropriate for the markets right now to be not pricing an awful lot of that in because there's not a lot of useful information. The headlines are not great. What I will say, I thought it was very interesting that Ursula von der Leyen, who, as you know, is the EU Commission president, came out today and said that the EU as a whole should consider vaccine mandates for everyone. Now, she said it's because of the transmissiveness of Omicron, but frankly, I think we should have been doing this a long time ago. I mean, the way I would put it, if I were advising Biden directly on this, I'd be saying something like, look, we are the United States. Our response to COVID should probably be the opposite of what the Chinese are doing. They don't care about individual rights. They don't care about what it's doing to society. They care about political stability of the Communist Party. And so what have they done? Zero COVID, maximal lockdown, maximal surveillance. Doesn't matter the damage you're doing because you're just not going to allow, you want complete control of this damn thing. What we should have done in the United States is exactly the opposite. We should have mandated fucking vaccines as soon as we knew they were safe and no lockdowns. No masks, no lockdowns. We are the land of the free. People should be able to live, send their kids to schools everywhere. And yeah, you got to get a jab. You know what? There are other things we got to get jabs for too. And we do it because we actually believe in science as a country. 
So how much have we given up on what America really is? We are the land of the most extraordinary scientific innovations and inventions on the planet. We're the land of the most individual freedom on the planet. And we're the land of get on with your life. Do what you need to do and get on with your life. And on all three of those, you can't even recognize American values and the way we've responded to COVID. It kills me. You know, you would think common good, we're all in this together, all those things. That's a very American thing. Yet this comes down right on party lines. I mean, on one hand, it makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, it makes no sense at all. Yeah, it's extraordinary that the right has made Fauci and the CDC out to be complete disinformation and vaccines and mask wearing. I mean, especially because Trump was the guy that did Operation Warp Speed. I would argue, and I have argued, I've said this to White House advisors, that Biden really had Trump to thank for the two most significant wins of his first year. First of all, if it wasn't for Operation Warp Speed, we would not have been in the world's best position on vaccines when Biden became president. And secondly, if it wasn't for Trump doing everything he could to promote disinformation and the election being stolen, there's no way that the Democrats win those two by-elections in Georgia and take the Senate. So frankly, Biden really has Trump to thank for those two massive successes, one of which was Trump doing something smart and the other which was Trump doing something stupid. But if you're Trump, you can't even tell the difference. So who cares? But I think that our country is much more politically divided than any other advanced industrial economy today. We are the country that is the least vaccinated of the G7. We are the most economically unequal, and we are the most politically dysfunctional. And all three of those things are self-inflicted own goals. That is a reality. So I'm not surprised that all three exist at the same time. They are linked. They are causal. And, And it's not like we've done everything wrong in response to the pandemic. I mean, not only did we have the vaccines and roll them out quickly and pay whatever we needed to. But our economic response, which was bipartisan, both under Trump with the Pelosi and Mnuchin deal and now under Biden, I would argue has been extremely effective among the most effective in the world. The inflation notwithstanding, which I think is more about pandemic challenges with supply chain than it is about spending too much money at the beginning of the year, God forbid, on poor people that needed some relief. But reasonable people can disagree on that. I am not in any way surprised by how deeply politicized this has become in the U.S. So bear with me a second here, Ian. There's going to be a question. Dan Nathan, what do they call it when people pin a tweet at the top of their, what do they call that, a timeline, Dan? What are they-, they call it a pin tweet. Oh, they call it a pin tweet. Oh, that's interesting. The shocking that they call it actually a pin tweet. So here you go. If you're not following some people you dislike, you're doing it wrong. I'm happy to help. That's your pin tweet. Why do I say that? Because it goes back to what we were just talking about. People live in echo chambers. Nobody wants to follow people they dislike or disagree with. They want to follow people or listen to people or watch people that reinforce their belief system and their dogma. How do we get past that? Well, it's funny. One thing I do, so I have 200 people that work with me at Eurasia Group, this company I started. And one of the things we do when we interview our analysts is we ask them to describe for us people that they truly respect, that they strongly disagree with in their field. 
And if you can't come up with such names, you obviously aren't going very far in the interview. But once you do come up with the names, we say, oh, okay, describe their views compared to yours. And what do you respect about their views? And can you be coherent around it? Most people can't do that. And so, again, for us, that's a fairly easy bar to ensure that we have the right culture in our firm. Of course, most people don't run their lives that way. One simple thing you can do, people say, oh, I watch so much CNN, I need to watch a little bit of Fox. Now, watching Fox, if you're a CNN watcher, will just make you more crazy. It's hate watching. Watching Fox will make you say how stupid Tucker Carlson is. Like, that's not helpful. What you actually need to do, and I make my students at Columbia do this, is you need to half an hour a week go on to Canada's CBC and listen or watch their best global show covering the United States and other stuff, or DW, Deutsche Welle in Germany, or Nikkei, NHK in Japan, because these are people that are just trying to figure out what the hell's happening with the crazy Americans. They don't have a dog in the fight, right? And their perspective watching global news is not going to drive you crazy. It's going to say, oh, wow, they see that. That's interesting. That's helpful. It brings the temperature right down. Where if it's Fox or if it's CNN or God forbid it's Twitter or it's Facebook, what we're doing is creating a nation of constantly anxious people. And it is very clear to me, the Chinese government understands that these tech companies are getting very powerful and the Chinese government actively wants to assert Chinese values on their internet. They want to ensure that people are imbuing patriotic stuff when they're online. And by the way, I don't know about you guys. I don't love Chinese values. There are a lot of problems I have with them. But when I look on Twitter and Facebook, not only do I not see American values imbued, but I see the opposite of American values imbued. I see echo chambers that make people actually digest more extremism, become addicted with hate and anxiety. And I got to tell you, those are not American values. They're not. Ian, you're the second really fucking smart person literally in the last week that has said to me or said to Dan and I that the system is created to make people anxious. The other person that said that was Michael Saylor, who's the CEO of MicroStrategies. We're set up that way. Why is that though? Why have we created a society where people are totally on edge and living literally second to second in their news feeds or their TikToks or whatever thing you want to talk about? Well, there are two reasons. One is because the business model of these media and new media organizations, which is to ensure a level of addiction of your brain psychology and physiology, it turns out that that happens to work particularly well to drive those clicks and to maximize the data that they can then make into profit. Because you've heard many times before, we are not the consumers, we are the product. When we're not paying for it, the data that they get is what the product is. That's the first reason. And the US is the country that's most governed by animal spirits in the world. So the regulatory environment doesn't really do very much to respond. That's also why we have the most powerful tech companies in the world that make much more money than the European equivalents or the Japanese equivalents or the Canadian equivalents. The Europeans are larger economy, the EU, than the United States. And yet our largest companies are like four or five X 
the size of the largest companies of Europe. So we get benefit from allowing them to do that. And if you're a markets guy, you like that. But if you're an American citizen or parent, you think it's insane. And so you have to figure out how much of those you want to identify with. And then the second reason is because this stuff, this entire field, we just don't have the people in government that understand it. We don't have the folks with expertise. We don't have the institutions with the regulatory framework to be able to effectively get inside. So it's not like a lawsuit is going to resolve it. It's not like it's big tobacco or big food or big oil and they capture the regulatory process. But once you figure that out, you have some lawsuits and you fix it. No, we just don't even have the framework for this stuff. So it's not like we're close to a solution. We're not. And it's interesting. I was talking to my friend Eric Schmidt the other day, who, you know, the former CEO of Google. And I asked him about it. He said, look, I got a lot of this stuff wrong. When I was in Silicon Valley, I really didn't think that the internet would be this functional. I didn't think our elections would be this controllable, manipulable by internal and external actors. And he said, you know why? Because I'm a computer engineer. Like I was a computer scientist. Like that's what I grew up to do. I, I don't study society. I don't study politics. I don't study history. And all of the people that are in Silicon Valley making these decisions are like me. So unless the government and other people are engaged in those conversations, you are not going to fix this. Thinking through the lens of markets again, we just talked about COVID and these different strains, and these were things that were unforeseeable. And then we kind of had, like you said, own goals and how we dealt with it, that sort of thing. The markets, and Guy says this a lot, because we have to opine on these things every day. It's really hard to answer the same question over and over again in the face of a lot of uncertainty. But Guy says this really well, that investors or the markets in general are really dealing fairly well with a lot of COVID-related news. Like right now, as volatile as risk assets have been, crude oil has just dropped 20% in a couple of weeks. The dollar has rallied. Yields on the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield have dropped 20 basis points. The stock market is only down 3.5% over all this, okay? And it's still up 20% on the year. So what we try to figure out, and Guy has talked about this a lot, and these are some of the things that I think you talk a lot about on Twitter and Eurasia Group. You have that top risk list that you put out every year. And when I look at your 2021 list, you guys were like amazingly accurate on some of the hot spots from a geopolitical standpoint, but they haven't really bubbled up yet. And I'd love to get your sense of what should investors be thinking about ex-COVID. And I know a lot of this stuff is related about supply chains and inflation and some of the financials goings on between nations that might happen. It seems the situation in China and Taiwan has the potential to really disrupt all of these things that we're trying to get by right now that have been a byproduct of COVID. Can you help us think about what's going on with China and Taiwan and what's likely to happen? Yeah, not near term. Near term, it's overstated. Both the Americans and the Chinese understand each other's red lines very well. They are frequently tested. Frequently testing red lines is a good thing because it means that you actually understand how the other person will react. It's not a bolt from the blue type risk. And even though Xi Jinping would view it as a legacy issue to integrate Taiwan into his one China, he fully understands that the Biden administration is not going to sit and allow that to occur. In fact, Biden's most significant foreign policy successes have been about the Quad. They've been about AUKUS. They've been about actually showing the Chinese that the U.S. is increasing 
its military and diplomatic footprint on the ground, including very critically defending Taiwan, semiconductor production and export, all the rest. So I don't worry as much about that as most people that are discussing these issues. I will tell you one thing that is a big concern, and this is one that we really did see screw up by the Americans, and that's Iran. We didn't like the Iranian government under Trump or under Obama, but you worked really hard to get the international community to support a limited nuclear deal. And then one guy decided he was going to blow it up by himself, even though the Iranians were in compliance. That was Trump. And every other signatory, all of our allies and our adversaries said, don't do this because it's going to be a worse situation. And he did it anyway. And so now the Iranians have had their election and a hardliner's there and they've still got the supreme leader and they are four weeks away from nuclear weapons capability. Not six months, not two years, four weeks, what we call a nuclear threshold state. And they are unwilling to go back to the old deal with us. And part of the reason for that is because Gulf states in the region say, screw you, America, you're not consistent. We're going to cut our own deal with the Iranians, like the Saudis, the UAE. This is a serious problem. Because the Israelis look at Iran and say, okay, well, we're not going to let them develop nukes and we will do whatever it takes to stop them. So the fact is that the singular decision of President Trump to unwind Obama's Iran deal because it was Obama's Iran deal has meant that we now have a serious problem that we didn't have in Iran. And that's going to drive markets. There's no question in my mind. So, Ian, I want to talk about China, but I want to follow up here because play it out. Game theory this out. You just talked about four weeks away. There's no stopping it, apparently. And according to you, there's no way they're going to stop given the landscape. How does this play itself out into the new year? Well, four weeks means at a point of their choosing, if they decide to continue to enrich, highly enriched uranium and stockpile it, that they will have that capacity for a nuclear weapon. They can be four weeks as long as they're not continuing for six months, for a year indefinitely. One of the things that the Biden administration is now trying to do is get a smaller deal. Say, OK, let's lock in the four weeks. We can't do six months. We can't do the old deal. We'll give you some sanctions relief for at least sticking with the four weeks. So maybe that happens. That's the good scenario is that the Iranians are in a better position for them closer to nukes with some sanctions relief in a higher energy price environment going forward. It's a good scenario. Bad scenario is they say, screw you. We're not doing it. And they work out on deals with the Gulfies. The Americans have egg on face. We don't really have a plan B. And the Israelis up their espionage, up their sabotage, and maybe start engaging in some direct strikes. And the possibility of war becomes higher. So there's no stable status quo that's likely on Iran anytime soon. Back to China. If you have an opponent whose leader has his role for life, does not need to be reelected, who is willing to lose battles to win the longer war, who has a 50-year outlook, not a five-minute outlook, an opponent who allows their champions to fall in the form of some of these companies, as opposed to us, who we socialize losses and we capitalize gains, how can that enemy defeated given those guidelines? Because that's what US-China is right now. Well, if I were advising Xi Jinping, and I'm not, I would say the Americans are inconsistent. So you keep testing, and at some point, 
some other president will come in or they'll have some domestic crisis or distraction. And that's when you move. You don't move now. The Iranians, they were given a gift by the Trump administration. Now they have the ability to build a much better position for themselves in their Gulf region than they ever would have before because the Americans were inconsistent. And that's what the Chinese have to hope for and wait on. And if you have a 50-year horizon and the Americans can't get our head out of the asses for every four years, every two years we have elections, then all you have to do is wait us out. At some point, you will have a much better opportunity and you won't need to fire a shot. So this isn't about war. This is just about biding your time until we screw up or until we take our eye off the ball, until we elect another meathead. Over 50 years, I'd bet you pretty good money that's going to happen at some point. The Chinese just need to be in position to take advantage of that when it comes. Now, the Chinese have their own problems and they're not small. From what I just told you, you might get defeatist on the United States. But let's keep in mind, we have the larger economy. We have the wealthier people. We have the bigger military. We have the energy exports, the food exports, as opposed to China, the imports. It's much easier for us to move to renewable post-carbon because we're so wealthy are much harder for the Chinese to do that. So we have a lot of intrinsic advantages. And by the way, China's going to be the largest economy in the world, but their population starts shrinking in 2027. And they've got a massive debt problem, including a corporate debt problem, much greater than we do in the United States. And they don't exactly have a global reserve currency or a pathway to it. They're threatened by cryptocurrency. We're embracing it. We're promoting it. Again, new technologies in the United States. China's closing some of that down. So there are lots of reasons to bet on the United States economically. The question is whether you would bet on the United States geostrategically when a lot of that stuff is longer term and requires consistency and commitment. That's a harder thing to do. Geostrategically, Guy Adami, we're going to have to look that one up afterwards. Let's talk about this one because this is one that's pretty familiar. You just talked about she waiting it out a little bit. President Putin has kind of waited many presidents out over the last, what, 25 years or so. We have this situation on the border of Ukraine. Is this thing going to bubble up? Is this going to be the sort of situation where, listen, the last time there was kind of fighting there by the separatists, that was not a pretty situation here. Are they likely to test this new administration? I think that the Russians see a country joining NATO the way the Americans see a country developing nuclear weapons. We're talking about Iran as a threshold nuclear state. I would consider Ukraine a threshold NATO state. And Russia really doesn't like that because they understand that if NATO's doing exercises with them, they're training people on the ground, you get any closer and suddenly Ukraine gets emboldened. They feel like, well, these guys are really going to defend us. And so as a consequence, we can do much more as we please vis-a-vis the Russians. The Baltics certainly feel that to a greater degree. Poland feels that to a greater degree. And so the Russians right now are making a number of overtly aggressive moves to say to NATO, do not challenge the status quo do not further integrate Ukraine because we might well decide to push this, even at cost to ourselves, to avoid Ukraine becoming inextricably a part of the West, which is unacceptable to them. There's some bluster there, and we haven't done a great job in calling Putin's bluff on things like their election intervention or Havana syndrome and all of our diplomats that have ended up with brain damage. And we know that the Russians are behind this. So there hasn't been a lot of cost 
expected risk being taken by Putin for the moves that he has made so far. There are also good reasons why Putin would not try to take more Ukrainian territory irrespective. It's not popular in Russia. And the territory that he has in Ukraine is the territory with all of the Russians and Russian speakers that are aligned with Moscow. More territory than that would be people that really can't stand Moscow. And that would be more expensive to hold and would lead to a lot more loss of life. So look, they could be skirmishing that could expand on the borders. Certainly, I could see that. I could see maybe some artillery, maybe some bombing. But the idea of like actually expanding a land grab, like a land bridge between the so-called Novorossiya and Crimea, I have a hard time seeing the Russians doing that. It's interesting. Western Europe seems to be at the mercy, and I'm choosing to use that word, of Vladimir Putin in terms of energy, because here we are in December. It's going to get cold there real fast. We saw how quickly gas stations or petrol ran out there in Europe. That's a scary scenario right now, Ian. And again, I don't see how that gets rectified anytime soon. Well, yeah. And when you talk about China, the Americans and the Europeans both have significant interdependence with the Chinese economically, which helps maintain a level of stability, even though the Americans have an additional military lens, national security lens that the Europeans frequently don't share. When it comes to Russia, it's a very different story. The Europeans have enormous dependence on the Russians, interdependence with the Russians. It's not like, I mean, the Russians are getting money for it, which they need, but the Americans don't. We have very little interaction with the Russian economy on anything, on tourism, on banking, on property, on investment, and on energy. And so it's much easier for us to say we should put tough sanctions against these guys, including potentially sovereign debt, which the Europeans are much more reluctant to do, especially given the energy prices and shortages they've just dealt with. Now, Merkel, at least as chancellor, was the personal architect of the Minsk dialogue, which is meant to maintain stability and provide a pathway forward on the Russia-Ukraine crisis. She's gone, and now we have Olaf Scholz coming in as chancellor. And even though his government, I don't expect them to be particularly soft on Russia, he doesn't have that personal sense of responsibility for that deal. And we already know that the Germans have been in Washington in the past few days lobbying Congress to ensure that we don't put sanctions on their Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And the problem with Nord Stream 2, of course, is it completely subverts Ukraine as a useful transit point for gas. So it undermines their geopolitical influence even more. And they don't have a lot of influence these days anyway. So, Ian, in your 2021 risks list, the number one risk was an asterisk with the number 46 next to it. How has that played out? Some of your thoughts about a president coming in where half the electorate or somewhere around there thinks he's illegitimate. He's got a party that's really divided. The far left is not particularly representative, I think, of centrist Democrats or even centrist Republicans, obviously. What is your take as we head into 2022? Will number 46 with an asterisk in front of it remain a top risk as we head into the midterms? Are we about to kind of get this reinvigorated party warfare going and all the things that we started this conversation talking about are things about to get worse? I got to tell you, I remember when I wrote that, this comes out the first Monday of January of the year. 
I've run this company for 23, 24 years now. I've never had a risk play out so immediately the way that did. Because the first couple of days, I'm going on Squawk Box and everything, and people are saying, oh, come on, the United States. I mean, geez, we had the election. What's wrong with you? Like, it's not that bad. I'm like, I'm telling you, we've got problems. The election is seen as completely illegitimate and stolen by the sitting president. That's a bad thing. And then January 6th happens. And you go, holy shit, I wish I was wrong. And the reality is that our government did nothing. The majority of the Republicans voted against certifying the election. Remember that. Against certifying a legitimate election, the majority of the Republicans said no, and they also opposed on nearly a party line a second impeachment against President Trump, which means that impeachment no longer has any force as a legal instrument. It's purely political. Now, that is a very serious and abiding problem. The Republicans at the time who did that, many of the more sensible ones said the reason they were doing it was, well, because we know that Biden won and Trump's just causing problems right now. But if we get through it, Trump is going to lose. Once he's not president anymore, no one's going to care. And we can move on. We can become Republicans again. It's not Trump's party. They were wrong. Hey, Dan, who was that group that sang Cult of Personality? Was that your friend Dave Grohl? Was that Living Color or something? (laughs) Oh, my God. So, Ian, this is where a guy does his dad jokes. Um, Well, it's not a dad. I'm just curious. And I mentioned it because, Ian, I'm going to read another one of your tweets because I think, again, there's humor in this, but there's concern as well. Ian Bremmer, day ago. My thanks to Matthew McConaughey for deciding not to seek political office. In return, I've decided not to become a Hollywood actor. Today, we are all better off. That's exactly it. That's who's winning these friggin' elections. Dr. Oz just announced he's going to run for something in Pennsylvania. Guess what? He's probably going to win. That's problematic. Yeah. Let me tell you a funny story about Dr. Oz. I'd love to hear it. I've never told this story before. It's pretty funny. So there's this event that I went to a few years ago in Aspen. And it's one of these things. It's called The Weekend. A couple hundred people get together and the first half of the day doing global conversations and very smart stuff. And the second half of the day, you're screwing around, golfing and you're hiking. And tennis was going on. We're all getting together and playing tennis. And you're playing tennis with these kind of rock star type people. And so I'm decent. I'm a club player. I'm not like exceptional, but I can play. And so it's me and Quentin Tarantino who I'd never met before. Whoa, 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 whoa. Stop for a second. This is crazy. You're going to like this story. Against one of these hedge fund billionaires, really tall, blonde guy, you know who I'm talking about, really tall, from New York. Well, that leaves Stevie Cohen out, so I'm not sure. Bill Ackman, he's supposedly a good tennis player. It was Ackman and someone else who was like him, and they were both clearly more athletic than me and Quentin, but I'm playing great scrappy ball and it's like 5-5 five, five or 4-4, four, 4-5. Four, four, I feel like this is my best tennis I've ever played. And then all of a sudden, Quentin's at the net and a ball screams at him and he just muffs it right into the net. And he says, damn it, Mehmet. And I think to myself, oh my God, I have not been playing with Quentin Tarantino. I am playing tennis with Mehmet Oz. Stop. <laughs> who I had also never met before. I just didn't realize. And my game fucking falls apart, just falls apart. We lose like 7-5 and then 6-2. And he comes over to me afterwards and he asked me, he said, what the hell happened? Like, you were playing so well. He's like, did you strain something? And I said, you know what? I could lie to you. I'm going to tell you the truth. And I told him the actual story. 
which embarrassed the shit out of me, but that's a real story. I didn't even realize they looked alike. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, they do look alike. You want to read a funny story about Bill Ackman? It was in Vanity Fair back in 2013. It was about this bike ride. All the hedge fund guys, they get these fancy bikes. They go on these long bike rides. You probably see them out there in Long Island, that sort of thing. But Google that article. is Dan Loeb and Bill Ackman. It's a really funny one from back in the day. I'm sure he was probably blaming some of his equipment for whatever happened or didn't happen there. But the conclusion of this story is that Dr. Oz not only should not be playing serious doubles tennis, but he certainly should not be running for Senate. Like that is not a mark of a serious country. That is the point of my question. So your McConaughey tweet was brilliant, but it's unfortunately the reality that we face. First of all, how can we lose McConaughey as an actor? He's an outstanding actor. Wait a second. Outstand. Come on. Seriously, Ian. I mean, outstanding actor. Not seriously, but he's a better actor than he would be a, a governor. I'm just Fact. saying I feel like we should leave him in his lane. I've worked for a very long time to become a good political scientist. I'm actually a pretty good political scientist. You don't want me going into Hollywood. What a loss that would be for the field. And I feel like someone like McConaughey understands he understands that he has to continue to contribute to Hollywood because that's where his value is. I agree with that. Hey, so Ian, I was a political science major at the University of Pennsylvania, but I've never actually met a real political scientist. You just called yourself a political scientist. And I think it's fascinating. What were the paths as you left school and you studied? What were the paths to becoming a political scientist? There were no paths. I thought there was a path. I got a PhD because I was pushed ahead. I was 15 when I started college. And so when I finished, I wasn't really ready to have a real job. And I was at Tulane, so it's not like anywhere with real jobs was actually looking to hire people. I think I got interviews from E&J Gallo Winery. And when I realized that I was going to have to stock stuff in addition to, like, go and be their distributor, like, I'm not doing that. So I got a PhD, and that's a full ride, which was great. And it's because I love political science. When I finished, the options were go be a professor or go into public policy. And I grew up in the projects. I didn't get all this education and not go get a real job, but I wanted to get a job as a political scientist. So I moved to New York, assuming that someone would hire me. I'm like, I had some skills and I knew a lot of people and people were very nice to me in New York back in the mid nineties, early nineties, but they didn't hire political. I did not appreciate they did not hire political scientists. And so after a year of getting frustrated, I basically went to these same people. I said, well, you're spending time with me, even though you don't have a job for me. If I just hung out a shingle, would you become a client? And they said, sure. So I didn't really know what the business was going to be, but that was how I started it. And that was back in 98 and no outside investment. And now it's been 23, 24 years and we've got 200 people and offices around the world. And it's a real company and it's going to keep growing and we love it. And there have been other companies started. Like there now is actually something meaningful for political scientists to do with their lives once they get a degree, if they're any good. And that seems like a useful thing to do. I think it's fantastic. And now that I know what the interview question is, maybe I'll get a job with you. Absolutely. The thing is, it's an interview question that even if you know the question, it's hard to fake being compelling in the answer. And if you can, maybe you deserve the job anyway. Like if you can fake authenticity that well, that's half of it, right? I think authenticity cannot be faked. How about that? That's a paper for your students. Can authenticity be faked? Let them opine. 
So you built this big company, your Asia Group, G0. You built also a media company. So talk to us a little bit about that. Guy and I are in the process of doing the same thing as it relates to financial markets. We think of the common thread through what we're doing is obviously markets, but markets have become pop culture. Markets have become sport. Markets have become entertainment. So there's a lot to chew on there. Your stuff is pretty entertaining. And it's the sort of stuff that gets widely engaged with on the social web. I see you all over cable TV. Like you said, you're a monster on old guy social, which is Twitter here. How did the idea for a media company based on political science or geopolitics come about? I think it was a combination of feeling like it was getting harder to be honest with people and go on CNN and MSNBC and Fox. And I still do do that. I go on all three, but most of my colleagues don't. They go on one or the other. And that didn't used to be true. So part of it was that problem. It was the segmentation. And part of it was just, you can make a lot of money and you can sell your research and your analysis to people that go to Davos. But if you don't have anything for the public and particularly for the young people in this environment and you have a real platform, then you're wasting something important. You're wasting a real opportunity. And so for me, starting G0, even if we didn't make any money with it, so far I've just been plowing all the money we've made back into it to expand it. But it just feels like something I have to do. I've got about all in 6 million followers, I think, across the various platforms. Let's talk about old guy social media. I mean, LinkedIn is actually where I have the most engagement by far. And by the way, I think the reason for that is because LinkedIn, very few trolls. Everyone is sort of a verified user. You know who they are. If they break the rules, it's hard for them to get back on. And that creates just more interest in the community in just talking about real stuff as opposed to performative nonsense. And I just think people appreciate it. They just want to become 10% less crazy. They want to be less anxious. And we have enough information about the world that we can help with that. So why wouldn't we do it? And also, once you've done something for a long time, the network effects itself give you a lot more chances to become successful. We just are known enough globally. We have enough of a network that it makes sense to be in the media space where when I was starting after five years, we could make really good money from a small number of clients, but we would have had no success ourselves building a media company. Well, it's been a joy having you on. I'm telling you, if you want the world just to sort of align, Matthew McConaughey should play you in the Ian Bremmer movie. That would be just fucking brilliant if you think about that. I mean, how beautiful would that be? But hopefully, Ian, you'll come back on with us. Thanks for joining us on the tape. It's been wonderful. It's the only time you'd see me driving a Buick, I'll tell you that. Okay, be good, guys. Thanks, Ian. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.